This is just a folk song about a juvenile delinquent in the 19th century, and this is called The Devil's Right Hand. One, two, one, two, three, five. By the time my daddy left the fight to be a war Saw my first pistol in a general store In a general store I was 13 Thought it was a fantasy I ever had seen As a faculty of a Sunday winter good Mama drives a dozen less A little blue look A little blue look I didn't understand Mama says a pistol's a devil's right hand all right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Hardcore Troubadour. My name is Brian Wallace, and I am joined by my co-host, Tyler Short. What's going on, man? Uh, you know, not a lot and, and quite a bit at the same time. How are you doing, Tyler? Very shitty day today. Yeah. Tell me. I mean, if you want to, tell us about it. I mean, it's like kind of just like the... Uh, like the like we're like building towards this thing right now so my job which i feel like i cannot out myself of where i work in this in this medium because i do not want to ever have blowback but um mm-hmm. i i work a job for a a very bad company and my union our contract is up this year mm. and it almost seems like this company is determined to make us strike. Wow. At this point, it is, uh, it's very, it's very crazy. Like the situations that I've been in a lot of times, um, being a union steward and having to sit in on some of these write ups and just wondering if the goal is to get everyone to quit or if the goal is to guarantee we all vote yes for a strike. Mm hmm regardless of what this next contract is um because i believe i believe we are um in that situation where if we vote no on our contract i think that automatically counts as a strike vote Mm. Um, i don't think we have to do a second vote i think it just automatically if we reject our contract we are going so the former Um, contract just expires like it wouldn't yes you know yeah, there's no working under no contract yeah. for yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. for for the company I work for. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, which has uh, and in in the in the 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 devil in the details of this is one of the worst Congress people in or not Congress people, one of the worst senators in our country, um, arguably the worst one, is uh, might be from the state that I live in. Yeah. And their spouse might be on the board of directors of the company I work for. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. So, um, a lot of this stuff just is just super fucking evil, man. It's super shitty, and I feel bad for some of these kids who are, you know, like, I mean, to it's to the point where like I tell anybody like if you're if you're under twenty five years old, and you and you start working here don't plan on staying Mm. and it's crazy because like it's a union job it used to be a good job right it used to be a really good job um in the 90s and in the 80s it was like a you know you could do this job and you could um 
you could have kids. Yeah. You could buy a house. You Make could a do reasonable things. living. Yeah. You could do things like that. And just, there's just been like wage stagnation forever. And um, they're doing something real shitty. And it's, it's one of those things where it like, it puts me in this moment. I had, an, I had a little bit of an argument, not an argument, but discussion with one of my union steward, my fellow union stewards today over the fact that they're bringing in 12 Spanish speaking employees hmm. um, that they got off of a job fair situation and they're going to split them up between different departments in like groups of like three and four so that they can all work together because they're going to need to be able to communicate with each other. Um, and I had to explain to her, like, I'm not being a right wing crank right now, but this concerns me that we're at the point where we're bringing in immigrant labor that can't even speak English. And she was like, well, no, these people need jobs. I'm like, yeah, no, they need jobs. I honestly don't think anybody really, but I don't think on, on the grand scale, everybody should even have to fucking work. Um, <laughs> that's just me. But at the same, at the same time, like I had explained to her, like, these people are going to have no ability to tell us when they're having an issue at mm. work mm -hmm. because none of the union stewards speak Spanish. And mm. they're like basically putting it into like a, well, it's on us now to get translator apps to be able to converse with these new people. And it's, I mean, I don't even have a fucking smartphone. <laughs> and my concern is that like not only not only does that like it's just it's a way to just to, to break labor power because now we can't even communicate with each other right and they're not going to be able to communicate when they're being you know pushed or asked of more than they can do they're just going to get fired yeah. and we're going to have really no way to even understand like they're not going to understand the recourses they can take and that's just that's what the company wants the company wants us to have no power so what are they going to do they're looking to the most powerless people and the most precarious people around because that's the labor force they want yeah and what they'll get too if they've got you know if you've got new people coming in and you've got a group of people who don't even speak you know don't don't speak the same language as you what that says to you now coming into this job is well this job is like basically like putting people in the most like hiring in the most people in the most precarious situations so i'm just not going to give a shit about this job and i'm just gonna come in work a few weeks and i'm gonna leave or i'll work a few months and i'm gonna leave and now we've got even more people who are just turning over so that nobody gets to build any sort of security nobody gets to build any sort of confidence in their job and um and that's what they want and the kids who work in the department that i had to sit through two kids getting sus suspended for two weeks basically not only were man was management breaking the rules of how they go about writing people up and disciplining people and we told them that we said this is against you can't do this we're going to grieve this and we'll probably win not only do they not care that they're breaking the rules but at the same time, these kids work in a department that has completely turned over its workforce mm. a, like a half a <clears> dozen <throat> times since it's been created mm. because they don't want anybody to be there for long term. So I'm just having like this doom day yeah. where I'm just 
like explaining to everyone who works there, everybody should be mad right now about all of this. Like everybody should be mad right now. And that's just, I don't know, to me, it's just, and I'm so concerned for these 12 new people who are not from America, who are going to come and work for this company. And they're going to have no idea to the level that they're being exploited. Mm. Because they're to them and in, in, in what the wage is for what, what the company I work for is paying. Mm-hmm. To me, it's probably good money. Yeah. But like to them, it's probably really good money, but it's, it's not, and it'll never get better if they can, if they can continue to attract people in the, and that's in those situations. Yeah. You, I mean, you've, you've got to make the assumption, right. That every one of these moves is calculated, calculated in one way or another. And, you know, obviously not just from, you know, the management that you work with, but from a, from a corporate level on down, right. It's like the, the idea of like, if they feel like they can and want to push you to strike, they must have some level of confidence that they feel like they can spin the PR game, you know, to, to try to turn folks, other working people against the workers. So instead of thinking about it from the lens of solidarity, they think through it through the lens of like, Oh, look at these people inconveniencing you. Oh yeah. Oh, um, especially in the business that we right. are and, in. And right, and where we're only, you know, a couple of years out from everyone working on the front lines and that business being called a hero. Oh yeah. You know, and I remember and, that. Yeah. And and now I remember and, my hero pay that they took away as soon right, as they possibly fucking right. could. Hero called heroes, essential workers, all of those things. And now um to the point where it's like not only do we not deem you essential but um you know i get playing a game of like chicken where they have all the power right yeah the other things that it makes me think about are i mean one just the sort of like gigification of basically any job that you could think of where corporations have realized like yeah an an endless supply of people um like working fewer hours turnover every few weeks or months or whatever in the long run that saves you a lot of money because like you said nobody's like building up it hurts your productivity though over time sure but i think they've done this calculation that it's Mm -hmm. like "Mm, we can we can deal with that because of how much money we're going to save um by not paying out you know benefits or wage increases or things like that over time and then yeah the, the other interesting thing this is making me think of you you bringing up the, the 12 workers, um, you know, who are only Spanish speaking or at least not English speaking right now. Right. There is, um, I read a few weeks ago, a really nefarious article and it was of interest to me because I am, you know, in this space where I have done, you know, union work. Um, I've also been in management roles, unionized and not unionized, and have done a lot of like diversity, equity, and inclusiveness work. And anywhere that people are doing the real work of justice, 
it's only a matter of time before capitalists like bastardize the language of those movements. Right? Oh, yes. And so we had an instance with one corporation um, that was seeking to outsource, right? What were at the time good, like decently paying benefit, you know, jobs in the U.S. Um, overseas, right? Where they would, you know, obviously be paying a lot less um, in in every single way, like saving tons of money, treating workers poorly, um, et cetera, et cetera. And when union leaders in the U.S., you know, protested that and are basically like, dude, like what the fuck? And trying to protect the jobs, the corporation's move was to call them xenophobic. Super sick. You know, which it's just, it's that twisted because one, they are seeking to exploit the non-American workers, right? But so, and, and using co-opting the language of like, you know, racial justice when they mm -hmm. don't actually give a shit about these people um, to try to make it out like, oh, so, you know, the the Americans are, you know, they don't want foreigners having their jobs. And it's like that is a total like willful bastardization of the actual concerns that we're bringing up. But again, another classic like pitting the interests of the working class against each other, right? Yeah, no, and, I mean, and that's yeah. my thing. Like, these people have every fucking right to come work there. Absolutely. They just need to be in a position or in a a level of labor where they can be autonomous without having to rely on constant communication with management or supervisors who do not speak their language. Yeah, yeah. They need to be in situations where they can work, they know what to do, they know what's expected of them, and they can mm -hmm. accomplish those goals and meet them. Yeah. If they are going to get written up or they're going to get disciplined, they are going to get fucked. Yeah. Because we have no way to explain to them, hey, you want a union. And, and also they probably won't join the union. Well, that's the other thing too. You they're not going to join the union because they're probably going to think they'll be punished for joining the union. Right. They, they, the, so the management will benefit from there being fear. Yeah. Who like knows what they've been told? That's the thing too, right? Because I don't know I, what they've been told about the job. Yeah. And you being in a, a right to work state where like joining the union is not mandatory. We had, we right? had fucking, we had, we had contract, we had a, uh, um, just like contractors working in our fucking store today from another, from, from like, they were supposed to be helping with an inventory somewhere else. They came in, they just worked at our store all day. Mm -hmm. If our shitty ex-governor had not pushed through right to work, like I'm, I'm at the point right now where like, I almost like pray for the day when I'm inevitably shoved out of this situation because my life goal will be to get right to work repealed in my state. Yeah. Like I will knock on every single door in Kentucky if I have to. Yeah. With, with a picture of their, their representative who voted for it. Yep. And yep. say, yep. I don't care if they're a Democrat or Republican, you need to find somebody who is willing to vote in your, in your class interest. Absolutely. I mean, and the other thing I would say there too, because like, Again, New York is so far from fucking perfect in every single way. But when it comes to things like, you know, 
you got workers where, you know, English isn't their primary language, you know, we could very easily say like, well, they've actually have the right to like, make sure we've got translation present and uh, all, all materials need to be written in both English and Spanish. Like management would be on the hook to do all of that stuff. Right. Our, de and, our devices we use are only in English. Yeah. Wow. Our time clocks only in English. Yeah. So they're hiring folks and not even Fuck giving you them the most like basic tools that they would need to be able yeah. to be like, um, like you said, autonomous and, and yeah, it, it, they're only it, sending a translator for two weeks to help it, them acclimate to the job. I'll say this. It makes, I mean, it's a very frustrating situation. Clearly, you know, management knows they're, in a, they're, they're, <laughs> they're hiring they're 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 making decisions where they're hiring people who are the most rife, you know, to be able to be exploited and where there's the most potential to like weaken the work that the union is currently doing. Yeah. Um even And they're though, probably getting a tax incentive for hiring the immigrant force too. They're probably getting because they get they right. they get tax incentives for hiring kids who are like, you know, mentally like divergent. And people who are physically like they hired a guy who couldn't use one of his arms to work in meat department recently. Mm -hmm. He had no use of one of his arms. That's dangerous. Right. It's like not even it's it's like that dude deserves the right to have a job and deserves to have the right to a job that he can do safely. And yeah. Like, well, right. Um, he, he, he quit after a week. I mean, go yeah. fucking figure. Yeah. I But it, I'll, I'll just say this, man. And like with the clear caveat that like, this is not, it's fucked up that they put you and your coworkers in this situation or whatever. The fucking translation apps work really well, man. Um, I know you don't have a smartphone. Well, I was going to say, I, ho I hope I, they work well enough for everybody else to, but like, to be it, able to converse and deal with, I'm just so scared. As I've, yeah, I them. mean, I don't, I don't minimize any of those concerns, but Google Translate, if anyone has an iPhone or an Android, is free. And both um, voice and um, text translates with pretty stunning accuracy. Like, okay, you know, well, this good. is not this is not me like it, it's one of those like double edged swords, right? Like not me like caping for the Google Corporation and all the like, mm -hmm. surveillance and data stuff that they do, but just the the fucking technological innovations are pretty mind blowing. Um, when I was in Japan uh, right before the pandemic, it was so fucking useful. Well, that's um, good. The other thing that I'll say, and that was a few years ago, so it's probably even better now. The other thing I'll say, man, is um, however they end up fucking you over at the end and whatever next steps you end up taking, um, yo, man. Learning Spanish would be fun and a good move and make oh, you a I know. better, make you a very a, smart thing to make do. you a stronger organizer. I am, I'll be, I'm conversational at best. You know what I mean? And I learned like, um, through the lens of an educator, I worked with a lot of parents who only spoke Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I learned was like primarily just being able to communicate about shit going on at school, but it has been so fucking useful just in terms of like, I can like building relationships with my neighbors and like shit like that. And, and, you know, um, so if you, uh, if you ever want to turn hardcore troubadour into like a side Spanish tutoring lesson, we can, we can go that route too, because 
Um, I'm not an expert, but I can, I can give you some of the basics you would need to, to start, you know, talking to your coworkers or just making sure there's some, um, you know, making sure that management is not able to divide you in all the ways that they clearly want to. Um, but yeah, man, fuck, that is a fucking, not just shitty day, but shitty situation. So I appreciate you sharing all that as we kick off this episode tonight. Yeah. I mean, also one of my, one of my coworkers gave me, uh, he gave me a stack of books. He's actually the one who gave me this, uh, Steve Earle, fearless heart outlaw poet that we are, uh, pulling information from today for this episode. Yeah. And for an addendum on other uh, episodes we've done, but he gave me a pedagogy of the oppressed. Oh, and Farrah. I've been reading that, and uh, it's been really bumming me out. <laughs> I mean, it'll bum. That's a that's a book that I've read and taught several times um, over the years, um, and I was about to say just as if not more relevant right now than um, it was when Frera first wrote it. Um, I did. Brazil's been coming up a lot lately. I was like listening to some of the stuff around Lula, it's like inauguration and things like that. And then that happening at the same time as like Pele's funeral. And I don't know if you've seen any of the fucking hilarious shit, you know, Bolsonaro being like a thin skinned, you know, shithead. Well, he's always been a thin skinned. We always shithead. that, right. But, you know, to the point now, they don't even do the like fake you know, bullshit ceremonial handover of power or whatever. Mm-hmm. So at the same time that Lula was getting sworn in in Brazil, he was in fucking Orlando, Florida, eating at a KFC by himself. Um, <laughs> That's perfect. So fuck yeah. <laughs> that dude does not care about his body whatsoever. I know, dude. Like, <laughs> it's just another reminder to like the, the conservatives like obsession with like this, like, uh, uh, alphaness or masculinity and stuff and it's all the like unhealthiest like softest dudes that they idolize like he has to take the worst shits every fucking day ah, dude, he's like missing fuck. so much of his gut already like i mean he had COVID uh, why would you just want to rock the rest of it out yeah but you know amazing that's, that's uh that's that's the brazilian strongman who's relocated to florida which just feels very appropriate yeah tracks. um fuck man um but yeah there's a lot of stuff that's really important to read, but that's also a bummer. So maybe we should talk about uh, Steve Earle instead. Yes. Um, Let's talk about this live album that I had okay. never heard before two weeks ago. Dude. So I'm, this is one of my favorites. You know, we've, we've mentioned this before and I think there was, you know, I'll be, Tyler's definitely on board, but I was the one making the hard push of like, no, we need to do the live albums too. Oh yeah. No, um, I was down. But yeah, so no. today we haven't even said it yet. I mean, if you're listening to the episode, you will have seen the title. But today we're going to be talking about "Shut Up and Die Like an Aviator," which is, uh, a, you know, a live record. Uh, Steve's had other live stuff come out since, but this came out in '91, um, and based on, or not based on, recorded um, October 5th and 6th, 1990 at a couple of shows in London and Kitchener, Ontario. Um, the title, I listened to this record for years without really knowing what it meant or where it came from. And the best I can surmise is um, it's a phrase that emerged during the Korean War. And who knows if this actually happened, right? But the, like the legend is there was um, an American pilot who had... Um, 
a Soviet plane like on his tail and was clearly like fucking very anxious because he there was a good chance they were going to shoot him down mm-hmm. and um, was like chattering into the radio pretty incessantly about it, either to like, you know, try to get some help or whatever it might be. And somebody on the other end said, shut up and die like an aviator. Basically, just this idea of that's a pretty hard fucking line. Even yeah, when, it's a very bad war. <laughs> I know. Like when death, <laughs> when death, death is inevitable and knocking at your door, it's just time. So and you. And there being something about like, we're all going to face it. And especially if you're a fucking aviator, you know what I mean? Like that's Mm going to happen. Um, So that's where the the title came from. I think there's a, there was a Marvel character. I'm not a big comic guy. I say big, I'm not a comic guy at all, but I also know it was referenced um, in Marvel comics some years later. But the thing that I read online that again, I don't know if it's true. And maybe Tyler, you'll have some insight into this is that like, Steve choosing this title for the record um, felt very appropriate for this time in both his life and his career. Um, Because yeah, I can definitely see that this was Steve one, just like self-described at the height of his addiction, um, you know, really unwell and two, where this was actually supposed to be a fourth studio album that he was doing with MCA they had gotten to the point where they didn't want anything to do with him anymore and so I read one critic like described it as like the time-honored tradition of like letting an artist out of their contract with a live album Um, so Steve wanted initially to put out another like studio record and um, MCA pushed for the live album instead um, which is how we got shut up and die like an aviator Um, I got a few more things just on like the context brewing around this, but I'm curious, Tyler, especially in like the reading you've been doing or in your like building familiarity with this record, if there's anything else you would add there. Well, so there's this one, uh, passage that I, I wrote down to, um, to Mark. This is a quote from Steve about this time in his life. It says, uh, Steve says, around this time, I made another record referring to the hard way. Mm -hmm. I made another record in really bad shape. It's a pretty good record, but kind of dark and scary. The next tour, though, was a nightmare. I played a lot of shows really sick. I was having to take take drugs before I went on stage for the first time. I'd never sunk to that before. I waited until after the show. I had a habit, but I started getting sick at 10 o'clock at night. We were playing mostly theaters and arenas by that time. So the shows were earlier. By 10 o'clock, my body wanted to know where the dope was. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> this is literally what's happening at this time. Like as yeah. you're hearing them play these songs um, in October of 1990, pretty soon after The Hard Way was released. Um, I had a little thing that I wanted to read um, by an author named Stephen Thomas Earlwine. Um, and I just found this online doing a little like quick, you know, description of where Steve was at at this point in his career. So if it's cool, I think there's, uh, you know, most importantly, Tyler just shared like from Steve's mouth directly where he was and what he was living through at this time. Um, But I'll read these two paragraphs really quickly about this time in Steve's career. 
Earl's acceptance by the rock community didn't please the country establishment in Nashville. Although it seemed for a time that Earl wouldn't need Nashville anymore, his newfound success quickly began to collapse. Uni, a division of MCA Records, had released Copperhead Road instead of MCA proper. And just before Copperhead Road went gold, Uni went bankrupt, taking Copperhead Road along with it. Meanwhile, Earl's addictions and fondness for breaking rules began spinning out of control. On New Year's Eve, he was arrested in Dallas for assaulting a security guard at his own show. He was charged with aggravated assault, fined $500, and given a year's unsupervised probation. Sandy, his first wife, sued for more alimony, and he was served with a paternity suit by a woman in Tennessee. The title of his 1990 album, The Hard Way, reflected his problems, as did the record's tough, dark sound. Though the record was critically acclaimed and spawned a minor hit with the other kind, it received no support from the U.S. country market and quickly fell off the charts. The commercial failure of The Hard Way was just the beginning of a round of serious setbacks for Earl. Later in 1990, he recorded an album of material that MCA refused to release. Instead, the label decided to release the live album, Shut Up and Die Like an Aviator, in 1991, and at the end of the year, MCA decided not to renew Earl's record contract. For the next several years, Earl was severely addicted to cocaine and heroin and had several run-ins with the law. In 94, he was arrested in Nashville for possession and sentenced to a year in jail. Um, and, you know, that's what's going on right during this time and what's to come right after. So Tyler and I were talking before, and just as we dig into the record, it's also just important to think about, like, this is a in addition to thinking about the music, just a, a, the end of a particular chapter in Steve's career that had some high, high fucking highs, but closes on a very low and bitter note um, where, you know, it's hard to imagine now because of this was all in the past by the time you and I being the age that we are, we're like getting deeply into Steve Earle, but there was a good chance after this, that there would never be another Steve Earle record. Oh yeah. You know, um, that he'd either be dead or doing a long prison term or just for mm -hmm. whatever reason, not able to, to put out any more music. And so, um, it's, it's interesting. This is still, um, yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that other than like, I fucking love this record. And, you know, the other thing I would share is Tyler, you mentioned this isn't one that you were, familiar with until a few weeks ago and we're going to get to some um in the coming episodes that i you know am not deeply familiar with or frankly won't be until i'm preparing to talk about mm -hmm. them but this is one that um again was introduced to me by brian hartley the singer from half figure gun room and where in addition to listening to it with him i found this as a used cassette um at uh at a record store in Memphis and used to drive around my 85 Mercury Topaz listening to it. So there are a few of these songs where I think, I don't know for sure at this point, you know, in the age of Spotify and just pulling up whatever I want to listen to at any moment. But there are a few of these songs where I think there was at least a good time where the version on this record was probably the one I was more familiar with yeah. than the studio version. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, honestly, like um, uh, Bob uh, from uh, Axe to Grind, he he advocates a lot for live records as a means of getting a greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. And I think this record absolutely applies to that. 
Totally. They pull, I mean, they pull stuff off of every studio record up to this point. Um, there's being super fans like we are, there's songs that I think both of us would want to add if this was there's like one in particular that I wish was on here. Which one? Um, Back to the Wall. Yeah. Because it's, it's and, my favorite song on Copperhead Road and it's not on here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'll, I'll deal with snake oil. <laughs> I hear I hear you. I hear you. Um, but like, you know, it's it's a lot of the biggest hits at that time and three covers. Um, and, and that's the record. Good covers. Good covers, too. Um, one I could do without, but two other ones that I really love. Um, and I think the other thing is interesting, too, is like, you know, this happens with a lot of live albums. There are some parts where you can kind of tell, oh, this was back-to-back part of the same performance, and then others where, like, they were edited together, yeah. you know, using, like, did this sound better on night one or night two mm-hmm. or whatever like that. That's pretty common. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that we've talked about is this, like, there are parts of this where Steve sounds really rough, Um yeah, that's one thing like uh like the things about the recording that I had written down that like stuff I pulled from the book is you know this gets regarded as like a terrible recording and like Tony Brown his producer um up until this point like he was kind of like he was he was getting pushed more to the side going up to the hard way which mm-hmm. to me it's like um it's kind of like revisionist to a certain extent I feel like on his part to like um like be quoted on saying things like this but like apparently he said like when he heard this he was like oh i got out at the right time wow and um but like first of all for him it's like okay well you're you're considered you're taking so much credit for like facilitating his success up until this point but the record that you had the least to do with is the first steve Earl record that that he's done that makes my top five yeah. So, excuse me, sir. I don't believe you had much to do with the fact, like what I really loved about Steve. Because when you got up further away from it, I like it even more. Dude, I fucking love that. But you know what? That that's some Nashville shit talking. Oh about, yeah, no, right? But because, like, yeah, yeah. To me though, this just doesn't sound that bad to me. I think because it's, I'm a, a punk. I'm a punk. We're, exactly, dude. Yeah. I was I was just thinking <laughs> that. Like, yeah, if you are, you know, I guess the frankly, like the 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 record label people who wanted everything that came out of Nashville to like fit into this like neatly polished mm-hmm. box that they worked really hard to make. Oh my God, Steve sounds terrible. If I can't fucking, sing. I'm no, fine with him if, not being able to sing. It's fine. If you're a fucking hardcore kid. <laughs> this sounds great. And I'll make this reference again later. I have made the argument before. I mean, to whoever has the misfortune of being next to me at a certain time. Right. But like Nirvana's nevermind is I think the record that at least in American popular music um, sort of like primed the pump for people to like find more gruff, rough vocals, oh, yeah. more accessible. Because oh, I, sure. I remember, and it's like, it's interesting to think about it this I mean, I was a very young kid at this time, but in 91, I, you know, knew who Steve Earle was through like listening to Copperhead Road, but I wasn't like follow. I didn't know he had a live record out or anything like that. But I remember my uncle coming home with the Nevermind tape. And I remember my grandmother and my stepdad laughing at how you couldn't understand what this dude's saying and fucking 
Weird Al did the like smells like Nirvana cover and like yeah. joked about like the marbles in the mouth, right? And so obviously if you're into punk and hardcore and metal, we've had you know music that sounded like that for a long time way yeah. before Nirvana broke, right? But that was the first like, oh, you can kind of be screaming and have a little bit of roughness that I think now people don't give a second thought to. But in 1991, the the um, American palette, at least when it came to like pop music, was not ready for some shit like that, right? That's what- Yeah, no, for sure. So to your point, man, I think on a lot of these songs, Steve sounds fucking awesome. He sounds real. Um, There's like two points, and we'll talk about it when we get into the tracks where I'm like, ooh, he's struggling a little bit here. Um, But for the most part, I think even though his voice has a gruffness to it that it doesn't have on the records, I think it really works because this is kind of how I expect shit to sound live. Um, Even- even when somebody's not strung out and sick, you know what I mean? It's like, you've been, when I'm seeing somebody that's been out on the road for a few weeks, I kind of expect them to, to be playing with a little bit of like lived in gruffness that I fucking love. Yeah, um, no, and, for sure. And to me, that's just how Steve sounds here. It sounds like somebody that's been, been on out tour. on the road for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's amazing, frankly, that he's pulling off the performances that he is considering how deep how in the throes of addiction he was. Right. Yeah. Um, because I, I I pointed out, I think there's just a couple of moments where I'm like, Ugh. you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But he always comes right back even after that. And it's a testament as well to how fucking good the Dukes are and were at this point. Because even some of those places where Steve vocally gets a little off track, the band is so tight that it stays together. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. The, the other thing as I mean, shit, man, that's a lot of context building. You ready to dive in? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Yo, I want to talk about the intro first. I thought um, it's cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I have this like fantasy in my mind. Um, all right. Nerding out. Like this is me with like the like conspiracy theory connection wall behind me, right? Okay. Steve Earle made his name in San Antonio. My favorite hardcore band from San Antonio is Bitter End. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bitter yeah. End. Yeah. Climate, climate of Fear. Climate yeah. of Fear. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there a mm-hmm. world? And I know we know somebody listening to this who might be able to actually like find this out. Is there a world where some of the the radio intro on Climate of Fear was inspired by Steve I know, Earl's I, intro? I know Daniel Rosen's a big country guy. Hey, so Daniel, if you're listening, I want to, well, we should talk to you about coming on a future episode anyway, mm-hmm. but especially want to know if, as y'all were putting together the sound clips at the beginning of Climate of Fear, which to this day, get me so fucking amped. Um, Have moshed for just that sound clip so just many the, times. Absolutely. I've drop kicked um, somebody during just the the intro sound clip. <laughs> like, it's just stupid is, behavior. There is panic in the streets. Um, <laughs> if, like, there's, you know, just like, because it's not, the, the clips that Steve uses here are not as, like, intense Mm-mm. because they're not building up to the same kind of, like, heavy riffage, but even in these first few seconds, we get a sense of one, the shit that's going on right then at mm-hmm. the, you know, the dawn of the, that 90s, he cares about that he cares about. We're talking about indigenous rights. We're talking about, um, anti-capital punishment against yep. the state, having the right to kill people and the anxiety of the looming Gulf war, which hadn't launched at that point, but was right around the corner. Yep. Right. And so that's, that's what you're hearing right at that point before they launch into the show. Yeah, no, it's uh like I have exactly that. Love the news clips, like land back shit. 
like capital punishment, foreign policy stuff, like stuff that you find in so much of his music for the next 30 years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, not the kind of thing, again, like using samples at the beginning of a record, something that as hardcore kids we're very familiar with. It's mm -hmm. not the kind of thing you see nope. out of like a more mainstream rock or country artist, you know? So yeah. again, just all the million reasons that we love Steve. But I was thinking this. So the first song that they go into then is Good Old Boy Getting Tough, which we had a long discussion about. Yes, we did. Episode. Um, but man, I love this as an opening track. It's it really amazing. Well, it's amazing. I mean, you literally like this, the way, the way this whole, the set starts out. I'm just so jealous of the people who are there. Yeah. 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 I just wrote would kill to be at this show. Oh man. And it just such a, yeah. It, in addition to it, just being such a good song and the band sounding so good and tight. Like again, I think the, 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 the roughness I'm using that, I'm overusing that word, but just the ways that Steve's voice sounds less polished than it does on the record. Oh yeah, not going to lie. They, I, I don't care for the original, the recorded version of this anymore. Yeah. This I works, like this. This works better. Yeah. Considering the the nature of the song, the lyrical material. Mm -hmm. I like the way Steve sings in here for sure. Yeah, it's, one of, it's literally one of my favorite Steve Earl songs, hands down. I think that this live version might top the original recorded version. And I'm pretty upset that I never listened to it before two weeks ago. <laughs> Dude, some songs are like that, man. Right? Yeah. Um, on, a, on a recent episode of Axe to Grind, they were talking about Earth Crisis very recently releasing a studio version oh, of yeah. Smash or Be Smashed uh -huh. that like is really a bad version of a fucking great song. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, yeah, it's the, 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 the weird live version is actually the one that I always think about when mm -hmm. I think of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a great song on the record, but I think it's even better here. Yeah, um, I agree. And then it moves from that into the devil's right hand. And it's pretty clear, like, yeah, he, there, he's coming out with the hits. Right. Yep. Um, again, I think this is a, a really good version of devil's right hand too. Yeah. I, I, the only thing I wrote about this was, I just was thinking back on the early tracks record and just, just wrote, geez, the rockabilly version of this song sucked. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm so glad that, you know, at some point in a drug induced haze, he didn't decide like, maybe we should bring that one back and yeah. play it this way. Uh -huh. No, like you did it the right way, Steve. Yeah. Um, and then I don't, this is a question where I don't know how you hear this Tyler, but like, um, the next two songs back to back are ain't ever satisfied. And someday two of my all time favorite yep. Steve Earl songs. I love this as a set list choice. Um, but can't fully tell like if if they actually flowed into each other at the show or if this is just how they edited them for the record. It sounds really seamless. Yeah, it does. Um, well, and but, I and I, I wrote down, yo, remember when I said "Ain't Ever Satisfied" is a sequel to "Someday"? I'm feeling vindicated right now. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Like, so like, oh, you know, we're four songs. I mean, five tracks and four songs in, and it's just like feeling really good. Right. Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, we're one, two. We're four songs in, and one of the things I wrote is between the two of us, the first four songs are our favorite songs off those records. Yeah, like again. So getting back like, because Good Old Boy's Mine, Someday Was Yours, mm -hmm. Devil's Right Hand Was Yours on Copperhead Road, correct? Uh, yeah. 
and ain't ever satisfied was yours on exit zero zero yeah so like literally out the gates like me and you would be front row geeked out of our minds smiling ear to ear like thinking like did he write the set list specifically for us yeah yeah totally um the other thing that it makes me think i i I talk about half figure gun room a lot not because we were that big of a deal as a band but because it was a big deal to you it was a big deal to me and my connection to steve right Mm -hmm. like i went from a dude who knows who Steve Earl is and likes the music that I've heard to like, and you know, to the, the dork that would start a Steve Earl podcast along yeah. with a dude that he barely knew at the time <laughs> um, because of that band. And so yeah. when we covered someday, which was the, we played Copperhead road a couple of times as a time filler and had never really learned it. Um, mm-hmm. And when I say time filler, it was like when we were playing like a bar show for money. Cause that's the thing that I, country band can do sometimes but someday was the only steve song that we actually had as a regular part of the set this is the version that we were doing at least i don't know if brian thought of it the same way but the way the electric guitar Mm -hmm. sounds in this version is what as i was learning it what i was imitating more so than what's on the record like hearing hearing this version i could hear how this song would work for a bunch of punk kids playing country music and and to me like thinking like and whenever that electric guitar is cutting in Mm -hmm. i would just i would think of you every time especially when it's just like jamming in and cutting out Uh, and i would think damn i bet brian had a ball playing this i loved it (laughs) there was just so much fun anticipation and then you just like it was fun to play it was really fun to play i'm fucking Um, sure and it's just such a damn good song it's one of those that even people that didn't realize it was a cover like we just got mm-hmm. into it immediately, you know? Um, fuck yeah. So coming out of that, they go into West Nashville Boogie, which has an extended jam. Very um, extended. Very extended. And I'll say this. The song like, is already an extended jam. <laughs> it's already an extended jam on the record, but I'll say this, like, I, I don't need it to be this long, mm-hmm. but like, if I was at the show, I wouldn't mind it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I think it, it it's a weird thing to say, but it just feels a little bit more authentic that like at this point in the set, they're warmed up, they're getting yeah. into it. They're going to rock um, for a minute. Yeah. And they're like, it, they're going to cut loose for a minute. And then, so I feel like this is another one where I like the recorded version of West Nashville Boogie. I think I like this one a little better. You um, see, I'm on the opposite. Oh Yeah. I like the recorded version of it because I, I, and what, what I wrote was, okay, so when we did the, the hard way or the, yeah, when we did the hard way episode, I said, this song gives me ZZ top vibes. When this kicks in, it is just straight up ZZ top. I mean, dude, yeah, you could think <laughs> like that this it was... is just as, like, I, I thought it was. And then when it, when it, he's, when the vocals kicked in, I was like, oh, this is West Nashville Boogie. Cause I'm listening to this at work with my iPod in my pocket. Yeah. Like while I was working overnight. And I was like, oh, damn, he's, they're just like playing ZZ top. And I was like, oh, no, this is West Nashville Boogie. Cause yeah. it tricked me. So I, mean, I like the recorded version of this song cause I hear it as what it is. It's also, version, I was tricked. That's so funny, but it's also a reminder that like, you know, blues rock the same way as like punk is like just the fucking same Same four chords over and over again, just like put slightly differently. So it very well could be a ZZ Top song, you know? Um, Fuck yeah. What I do love, even though Snake Oil is not one of my favorites, 
the piano connection. Oh, dude, the way these songs link together is yeah. phenomenal. Masterful. And Snake Oil is one of my favorite songs. I mean, it's so a it's a I great was, song, right? I was thrilled. But this is my this is my number two off Copperhead Road. So fuck yeah, I know. But if you're listening to this and you haven't heard it, like it's just one of the that is the power of this being a live album is the way they go from that extended jam. Everything cuts out except the piano. Mm -hmm. And then the piano just seamlessly takes you from West Nashville Boogie into the intro to Snake Oil. And I always geek out. I mean, yeah, this is like the, you know, like wannabe rock star stars in my eyes part of me always like when you when you hear the crowd realizing what it is mm -hmm. and like getting really excited that yeah. always gets me pumped too um so this the the lead into snake oil here fucking rules absolutely um fuck oh damn i did i did forget when we, before we got into this and we'll, we can just hold it off till after i was just telling you so we don't forget yeah there is a little bit of a thing he wrote about this record on the back that i hadn't seen anywhere else other than on the record sleeve that i'm looking at right now so nice just remind should me we, should we no, get we'll, to that later yeah we'll get to it after uh after the awesome. end of it awesome well i have a question for you so next he does the first cover um mm -hmm. of this set which is a jimmy rogers song blue yodel number nine at the beginning he dedicates it to someone named warren campbell do you know who this warren campbell is yeah me neither. And I couldn't, I Find couldn't anything. figure it out, you know, in again, yeah, as he says, we send this song out to him every night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't, and I'm not, and I'm not going to lie. I've never really been familiar with this song before. The only reason I knew it is because at some point, um, I had a playlist and I don't know who made it or where it came from, but it was like the fucking top 50 or whatever songs about Memphis. Mm -hmm. and you know of all time right and like so you know obviously it had elvis and like all you know the stacks records soul stuff all kinds of stuff but um this was one of them um, yeah i mean i'm sure this makes me a huge poser that i didn't know that who i, I and this is the one cover that i for some reason didn't look up anything mm. about it i mean yeah it's jimmy rogers who was from mississippi and who was the the reason he's considered a pioneer and again, I don't think you're a poser, Tyler, because I feel like if I hadn't grown up where I did, I wouldn't have known because it's like a combination of this particular song being said in Memphis um, and Jimmy Rogers is in the like Mississippi Music Hall of Fame, which at some point, dude, all this shit runs together in my mind, mm -hmm. but I've been there <laughs> and like was like, oh, this dude's from Meridian. Um a town in Mississippi and he um, was considered a pioneer in the world of recorded country music. Whereas up to this point, you know, a lot of like Delta blues, Americana, early folk artists, except for some of the big names, a lot of the recorded stuff we have from them is from like field recordings that the government yeah. was coming and doing and shit like that. Mm. Um, he like, you know, traveled to New York city and went to a studio and like things like that. And so yeah, there's true. like a better record of some of his stuff, even though he died at 35 years old of tuberculosis, which, you know, uh, just tells you more about how fucking hard living and like, you know, precious life was then. Um, but so he covers this song, which again, I think is a, it's not a song I had thought about much at all, but I think it's like, it's fun. And Steve's voice does it really well. 
Yeah, my familiarity with this song is uh, Coulter Wall references it on one of his mm. in one of his songs. Uh, fucking maybe 13, 13 silver dollars, I think. Yeah, he, uh, he references uh, Blue Yodel number nine. Um, yeah, but uh, my my thoughts on this, and I fucking didn't think to take the time to listen to Steve's entire discography. But um, there's uh, well, I guess his later discography is on an, another another record but there's a song where i feel like steve borrows from this from blue yodel number nine structure a little bit and uh i'll try to remember right now to log that in a future episode and i'll go remember when i said that thing here it is this is what i was thinking of (laughs) we're gonna remember it yeah i'm just committed i still remember there's 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 something in early tracks that reminded me of uh poor boy so i'm still gonna remember to reference that back to that whenever we do uh i feel all right well, I don't want to do, like go on off into a, like, you know, this isn't about Jimmy Rogers, but like to give a very quick uh, piece of his bio from his Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. right? Um, just the the sort of spiritual connection that Jimmy Rogers has with all of us. Um, Rogers' affinity for entertaining came at an early age and the lure of the road was irresistible to him. By age 13, he had twice organized and begun traveling shows only to be found and brought home by his father. Incredible. His father found Rogers his first job working on the railroad as a water boy, and here he was further taught to pick and strum the guitar by railroad workers and hobos. As a water boy, he also would have been exposed to the work chants of the African-American railroad workers. And so you're just thinking about like all that put together is how Jimmy Rogers... Became. became who he was and started writing mm-hmm. songs like this. That's awesome. Um, so um, pretty fucking cool. And Songs about getting nabbed up by a cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, in so many ways, like the perfect song for Steve to cover. Absolutely. Um, it goes from that into the other kind. Transition's incredible. The transition is incredible. And we've talked about this before. It's a fucking fantastic song lyrically and every other way this is the first point on the record though where i've been like there are parts of this where steve doesn't sound good to me um he's like it's not just rough he's like slurred on a few of the lines here the the thing that i think he the point where i feel like he doesn't sound that great is on i never satisfied Mm. yeah there's some moments in that chorus he's 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 rough he's probably should have just let the rest of the band have that part I was about to say it emphasizes how rough he sounds when the rest of the band is doing the harmonies because mm-hmm. you can like really then hear yeah. that he's off. Um, yeah. I think, I think something he would have maybe learned a little later is at times he, and at times I've seen him live, he definitely ducks out Yeah, at times and lets other people like have things. Yeah. And uh, I feel like here he was still trying to like do the whole damn thing mm-hmm. and don't have to man dude yeah you don't have to man that's why why three other people have mics up there (laughs) dude duke's rule let them do their work you know what i mean yeah that's awesome um and i wonder too again like speaking of transitions because at this point he other than a couple of what's that are you talking about after after the the other kind or after the other kind where he tunes (laughs) where he tunes (laughs) and then at yeah so like he 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 tunes right there and then an audience member asks, how are you doing, Steve? And he goes, doing fine. <laughs> and it just makes me, again, we don't have any like visual, but I want to be like, 
it's it's almost you know there's a world where it could have just been some dude in the audience like trying to be funny but uh-huh. i've i've always interpreted it as a dude being like hey man are you okay <laughs> like do you need some he might water look rough. yeah it's like do you need to sit down for a minute or like drink some water or something and he's just like nope i'm playing the next song let's go um, <laughs> that's amazing um but yeah i mean he's he's rough as hell during billy austin too but like it fucking works so well mm-hmm. given that like the, just the slow melancholy like storytelling you know nature of the song yeah um, yeah i like the way he starts it honestly i think it's i think it's it's real nice how he comes in the the thing i wrote about this is is it poor taste to woo and whistle during this song dude i i thought the <laughs> Jesus same thing christ yeah this this crowd fucking very gauche right yeah and I can't also get a sense of like how big, like it's clear, like it's a big crowd, but are we talking yeah. like a packed club or is he playing like a theater at this point? You know, like, yeah, I don't we, know. we read some references to like arena. And so is there a world where it's like, is he in like a hockey arena or some shit? I mean, I could yeah. see him play. I could see this being like a field show or something or like yeah, a, yeah. like a, like an outdoor stage show. That's what I mm. envision in my head. Interesting. Yeah. It's like one of those outdoor gigs. But it, I, I, it literally in my head when I thought about this, never imagined it inside. That's fascinating. I've always thought about it in like a big club that's packed. Yeah. Um, but again, I don't know. Like I, I hadn't, I wasn't able to find anything about venues, just the mm-hmm. towns that these shows were in. And the, the fact mm-hmm. that Kitchener spelled wrong on the cover. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, he spelled it like he says it. Kitchener. Kitchener. Um, yeah. Yeah. You don't need that extra vowel in there. Um. So, I mean, again, he keeps fucking churning out the hits. Then they go yep. into Copperhead Road, which it, the other thing I thought fascinating, like how many people, this was inarguably at, the know, at this song. point, maybe the biggest song Yeah, right in the middle of the set. I mean, the um, two times I've played, I've seen him. He, well, first time I saw him was on the Copperhead Road reunion tour. So he was opening with it every night. Yeah. And then the last time I saw him, he played it halfway through the set and even joked and said, all right a third of y'all can leave now yeah right i mean that just shows like <laughs> and literally like 20 people left <laughs> oh, fu- they really left fuck yeah like 20 um, people left they were really there just to hear copperhead road i mean it just speaks to how good I mean, they might have been is. old also right but if i had a song i'd be like no everybody has to wait i'm closing with copperhead road always but like his shit's just that good he can throw it right in the middle um and two, I wonder at the time, again, so much of this is like just pure speculation, right? But like part of it makes me wonder too, if there's like a, yeah, a few years ago with Copperhead Road was the last time that MCA was happy with me. Um, so like, fuck it. I'm just going to treat it like any other song right here in the yeah. middle. You know what I mean? Um, and play play what I want to play basically mm-hmm. through this set. Um, it is... It is a it is a cool version of it where I think less about Steve's vocals on this one and more about the electric guitar work. Yeah, um, there's some fucking. It's heavy. Th- this is my fantasy when I was playing Gunroom songs was to 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 imitate shit like this, like country rock with a fucking shredder in the background, yeah. and like that's I still get stoked when I hear it because like you know it would be the electric guitar doesn't take away from the song 
but it does make you notice it in ways that you don't on the recorded version mm -hmm. of Copperhead Road. Um, no, this made me want to want to see him live again so bad. Oh yeah, fuck yeah, man. Um, and goes from that into Fearless Heart, a song that um, you and I both really love. Um, what do you think about this version of it? I think the electric guitar and the drums sound amazing on this and add a lot. Yeah. To it. I, I think agree. live this song and, and I don't honestly, I don't think I've ever seen him play Fearless Art. Mm. I think you both know, times I saw him, I don't think he played it. Come to think of it, I don't think I've heard him do it either. And you know, I'd have to I can at one point I had like marked on what is the website fucking like last FM or whatever that has mm -hmm. set list, like marked the shows I had been to. Um, but now that you're mentioning that I don't think i've heard him do fearless heart live either yeah which is crazy because um, it seems like such a big song yeah i mean it's, it's just, part of the fucking title of this book i mean right yeah i mean it's <laughs> just at this point though he's there's so much material um yeah when he's picking what to play now but yeah i wrote the same thing i wrote like um i love the parts on this where like you can really hear the the electric guitar and the steel like playing together mm -hmm. It really works really well. And there's a few parts here where I think Steve's voice gets kind of off, but the Dukes really carry it. And yeah. so it, it, it just fucking works. Um, he does guitar town next. And it's like a really like funny moment. Yeah. The way he, the, when he's like, <laughs> he's like the fucking tease. Yeah. He goes, I'm, <laughs> I'm such a tease. It's awful. Um, Cause he starts it like, Acapella, acapella and then yeah. they you know start into it together i think um this is probably the worst to me that his voice sounds on the entire record um yeah i still think it's i, I think it's uh ain't ever satisfied for me i think mm. that's the worst he sounds i hear you. but i did like i don't think the first time i saw him he played guitar town but he played it the last time i saw him mm -hmm. and i i think i just kind of like just blurred through it because i don't really it's not really a memorable part but yeah. listening to it on this recording i was like fuck such a good fucking song it's a great song and i mean i want to be clear like i still love it and love this version but it's just like relatively like this is probably one of the other points where i'm like ah i can tell that he's struggling at times yeah, but here. it's also i mean he's fucking <clears throat> what 12 songs in 10 songs yeah. in yeah and that's the other thing too, as you get closer to the end, you can tell that regardless of how they might've like edited together some of the performances from, from each of these two nights, like it's clear that like we're deep into the show now. Yeah. Regardless, you know? he's going to sound rough. He's going to sound rough both because of yeah. how long he's been playing. And like he said, in what you read earlier, like it's how hard he's been living <laughs> close to 10 o'clock yep. and his body's like close to ready to being done and thinking about nothing else, but where he's going to get his next fix, you know? Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think that with this time period was close to 10 o'clock was after he played when yeah. he was opening for people. Mm. But by now he's headlining. Yeah. Which means he's having to take his, he's having to get right before he goes on stage. Right. Because, because he's going on at, he's going on at nine 30, 10 o'clock. So he's yeah. got to get, he's got to get right before and, hope for the best fuck man yeah, so, yeah fuck like, man, exactly like we said it is yeah it is just incredible that he still sounded as good as he did and played the volume of shows that he played during this time period yeah considering just how deep in the throes of addiction he was mm -hmm. um, at this time and just all the other stuff that comes with it because it's not just needing to get the fix you're not you're putting your body through hell and not taking care of yourself in any other way too. 
yeah all this and going out and doing something that is like physically grueling for you know two hours every night um and you know just being on sitting in a van or a bus for half the day too um damn so he goes from that into i love you too much which we've talked about before is like not not, your, a, not for you <laughs> not not for me but i do they do some really cool vocal harmonies there mm-hmm. um and that i don't know so that that makes me happy but um not one of my favorites either in the studio or live yeah i wrote the live version of this definitely bops but it is absolutely ridiculous that they try to pretend they're ending the set with this song yeah i know isn't that so funny yeah um, dude i will say the, the cl- part when it when it, it cuts out to just guitar or whatever what i would refer to as the breakdown is mm-hmm. is sick <laughs> it is pretty sick i'll give you that I'll give you that. But it's absolutely ridiculous that they tried to act like this was the last song, like letting yeah. people cheer for so long. Like, you're really going to go out with I love you too much. Yeah, like, that's the last fucking song. The the What the, a fucking asshole. <laughs> the culture of encores, man, at like big shows, you know, where it's like, you know, it's happening, mm-hmm. um, but you still have to like. I hate it when you, you have know, to play when, along. Yeah, you have to play along, or when it's like, come on, you could like. Iron Maiden in particular, I think, does a pretty good job with like they don't let it go on for that long. Mm-hmm. Like you know, they're about to come back, so they 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 let it last about a minute. But I've been to some shit where it's just like, wait a minute, they really might not be coming back. Um, and it just feels like, did you maybe they just needed an extended breather or something? Yeah, but like the performative nature of it when it started as something where it was like the audience demanding more, and then um, now it's planned. Right, feels just yeah. kind of silly. Yeah, um, no. One thing I do like about Steve, the times I've seen him, he's played like a unique encore for the the situation every time. Yeah, like for the, sure. fir- the first time I saw him was in Eastern Kentucky. So he came out. He played one more song solo by himself, and he played Harlan Man. That fucking rules. And there was a there was a woman yelling for God is God in between almost every song for the whole night, and I know she was so sad. But when he said, like, this is a song for, for you Eastern Kentucky folks, the song's called Harlem Man or whatever, like, the amount of people in the room that lit up oh yeah, for that, and I was fucking thrilled. And just where you know, like, yeah, like you said, it's special. He's doing something different every night yes. in that spot, depending on where he's at, the context of the show, that fucking rules. Yeah, no, it's um, very cool. But I love, I love this encore, man. So... Well, I'll tell you this. I love most of it too. Um, but if they're just from a pure song perspective, if there's any song on this record I could do without, it's this cover of She's About a Mover. Really? Because, okay, so am I, am I a poser for have never really heard of Doug Stone before? No, because I hadn't either. Okay, cool. I don't, I actually love this. I think this fucking song rocks. I did look up the record that this is on and listen uh-huh. to the whole thing twice. <laughs> No this shit. Is the best, this is the best one. <laughs> All right. Well, so that's what rose to the top. This is the best um, one. There's a couple other good songs. I mean, it's very, it's very like hearing this. I can hear like I hear a lot of like Steve had a was a huge Beatles fan. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah I right. Can it, hear that Beatles like what it, in the in the jeans. It sounds like uh, saw her standing there. That Beatles yes. song. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, I don't I don't like that shit. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I wrote I wrote never heard the song before and ashamedly was not aware of Doug Soam, which makes me feel new as hell, which I guess I don't need to feel new as hell. Oh. And then I wrote uh, song rules, checked out the record. The song is on it. Okay, pretty good. And I want to say, I mean, the, the other things that I can get briefly from this is this was, I think, if there was any, this was his like hit. Um, if you mm-hmm. ever had one. And I think, you know, like Steve knew him because he was from San Antonio. Yeah. Um, but well, I, I think he, does he, he have something to do with the Texas tornadoes or whatever. Uh, I think he might have had something to do with the Texas tornadoes. When I was looking into him, they were one of the related artists. I yes. Think he might have. He formed the super group, the Texas tornadoes with Augie Myers, Freddie Fender and Flaco Jimenez. Because yeah. I like some Texas Tornadoes stuff. So I, I guess I had heard of Doug Soam before without knowing. So so I will admit that I'm a poser and have never listened to Texas Tornadoes. Only know um, them because they were on that podcast my buddy Paul made me. Well, there you go, man. It's, yep. dude, it's fucking rules to like still be finding new shit, even mm-hmm. if that new shit is from 1989. Um, that's awesome. But yeah, Doug seemed like a cool dude and like a good friend to Steve. Um, and yeah, he it's it's amazing. Like, this is a dude whose musical career was basically like he had a top 20 hit in 1965 with she's about a mover and then like stayed a musician for the rest of his life. Um, but until, um, the Texas tornadoes, he, he really didn't have anything that was like super notable, notable, um, through the rest of the time. But, um, Texas tornadoes won a Grammy apparently. I never knew that. Yeah, they're pretty good. Um, also, I'm gonna check them. I out. can't like think of anything right now, but I know there's like parts of it that like sticks out to me that I that I remember like songs off that playlist liking. I need to revisit it now that I've made that connection. Yeah, well, um, I don't really like the song, but I think it's a fun choice, especially to like open the encore with. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, no, sure. I think I think they the way they play it rocks. Yeah, yeah, right on. Um, and then we get some of the, the, in these last two songs, um, of the encore, we get some of the best, like little, like tidbits and storytelling from Steve, or at least that they left in on the record. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I, having seen him before, I think it's highly likely, or maybe not because he was so fucked up that he said a lot more shit at the show. I would think so, but man, I don't like, I'm, I'm curious if like around this time he was, he was sticking to tight. Like, you know, you've got yeah. this much time on stage. You got to yeah. you got to fill it. And he was just trying to get out there and play as much meat as he could. Yeah. And he probably and then, felt like shit, too. So yeah, and he absolutely probably <laughs> felt like shit. But like w- what I have written down before uh, the rain came down is this is what I was missing from everything up until this point was the banter. That's right. I mean, it's part of what if you've seen Steve live at any point, like certainly in the last 20 years, but likely even before then part of what makes the live show so special. Um, yes. and, and we got very little of that. So that is a, just an open point of quite, I think it's, I could see it going either way to your point, Tyler. Mm-hmm. I could see it like there was a conscious decision at this point in his career to not be doing that as much, or there's mm-hmm. a world where it's like, he did a lot of it and they just didn't put it on the record. You yeah. Know? Cause dude, I mean, it is what makes, I mean, it is what makes seeing him so special. Right. Cause it's frankly, he's, he's, he is a public speaker. Absolutely. And it makes me wonder if there was some degree of censorship involved on the part of MCA, because some of the stuff 
you know, especially that he says at the end that we'll get mm-hmm. to, um, you know, I could, I could have seen a world where some of the fucking executives at MCA, especially who were just done with Steve at this point, yeah. um, you know, like these were, these were pretty radical takes and things yes. that he was involved in. Um, so, but he starts in the intro to the rain came down reveals that, you know, he wrote this song out of guilt, guilt. Um, <laughs> after playing the first, he played a few farm aids, but after playing the first one, because the first one um, apparently, you know, was not as big and didn't actually like provide as much relief to farmers, but was very instrumental in Steve's career and yeah. like getting his name out there. And he um, just because of the person that he is, he kind of recognized that like it wasn't his intention to use this benefit as a stepping stone, but that's how it played out at the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we got another fucking powerful song out of it though. And the rain came down. Yeah. Um, and one thing I wrote down, like re- reading the book, um, so his great grandfather made the trek to Texas. And I have a little bit of a wonder if this song also is kind of a tribute to him. Mm, yeah. In a I way, because they uh they grew tomatoes, peaches, and peanuts. And uh his name was Elijah Earl, and he seemed pretty progressive for the time. Like he had like a chapel that Steve was married in the first time, I believe. Elijah's chapels mm-hmm. uh and um but he was like adamant that like anybody could come and worship there like of any denomination like of any religion they mm. could just come and use the chapel if they wanted to have a service and like i don't know i thought that was really interesting yeah to uh i mean it's really believable that he was if that was his grandfather who died i think kind of suddenly like in his mm. early in like his mid 60s um and like it makes sense that he would have raised, I think Steve's dad. Yeah, he would have raised Steve's dad, who kind of felt like he could let Steve do, yeah, his own go his own way as well. And it kind of makes that like, it it makes it makes some of the the other songs that he's written where he acts like you know like what he's doing is so outrageous to his family, and it like really you you realize this family is very supportive of. His music, yeah. maybe not about, his, uh, his lifestyle. But... Say, I mean, your sister's literally standing right there next to you during yes. this too, which is yes. fucking awesome, right? Yeah, but um, uh, but yeah, I just, I just I just thought that would be interesting to like bring up. Yeah, no, that, I appreciate. Like, there that. is there is like they did they he he made it he went out west and risked it mm-hmm. and found success. But yeah. I think like this song kind of addresses the fact that it didn't happen for everybody. That's right. I I. I wasn't aware of that um, about his grandpa. Fuck yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, well, I want to talk about, I mean, on the the last track is a cover of Dead Flowers by the Rolling Stones. And I have some things to say about that, but I frankly, I think the more interesting stuff is everything that Steve says <laughs> in the intro yes. as he's like closing the show. Um, so the first thing he talks about is um, and I remember in the pre-Wikipedia days when I first heard this album, Steve being like, well, you know, I went over to Oka, so I just want to like clear the air about that. And I was like, what's Oka? You know, and, you know, using whatever means I could in that primitive stage of the internet. <laughs> um, but still, you know, learning about like basically this like 
land battle in Canada in 1990. So this is like happening at the time in Canada as this is being recorded. And just to show you how fucked up it is basically like, you know, land that had already been taken illegally, you know, obviously from the time that the the countries that are now called Canada and the US were established from indigenous people, but even within like the frameworks of a treaty that was there yeah. um, to expand a golf course and build <laughs> condos. Okay. So the the city of Oka ne- or whatever. Well, we, necessary infrastructure is what you of, of course, right. Yeah. Was taking um, more Mohawk land um, to, um, and this is Oka, Quebec, Canada, um, as part of like a, a project to like expand a golf course and build 60 condominiums. Um, the Oka people objected. A judge that was in, not the Oka people, the Mohawk people objected. Um, a judge that was, you know, white and in the, you know, the, the, the pocket of development and feeling like, you know, they should have dominion over all of these lands and not the, no way. You know, not the, you know, first nations people that were there, um, ruled against them. And so not just Mohawk folks, but a lot of other first nations people, um, and supporters from all across Canada and parts of the U S like came together to like, you know, form organized resistance and, led all the way to like first just local police and then the Canadian military um, getting involved and escalating this to the point that there were uh, a couple of deaths and tons of people injured in the course of this standoff, which lasted a couple of months. And it's interesting, one, just uh, especially, you know, being the age we are being in the U.S., like just building knowledge of like that, that happening, that being a thing in recent history, but also Steve and, you know, the important context being Steve at that point being more popular in Canada than Mm -hmm. he was in the U S being right in the middle of it. Because as he says in this intro, like there were first nations, people wearing Steve Earl shirts, um, getting rocks thrown at them by white people. And Steve fucking went over there to, to like show solidarity and support the indigenous protesters. And um, I can just imagine, even though, you know, like Steve's, you know, left-wing progressive, whatever you want to call it, bona fides are like clear and established. And he's never backed away from that, that in the world of country music, you know, or, or any kind of like white dominant music, there was some pushback from fans, from the radio stations that were playing his music and things like that. So Steve took this opportunity to like clear the air. Um, And this is something that I was completely ignorant about when I first heard this record. And then even in just re-listening to prepare for this podcast, ended up like reading a whole bunch about the crisis at Oka, um, which uh, Mohawk people refer to as the Kanesatake resistance in 1990. So that's something you've never heard of. I suggest, yeah, I mean, no. start with the Wikipedia page. There's a lot of other stuff you could read, but I think it's it's both um, important to learn about that particular incident, right? Um, and just the way that like literally cards on the table, the things that we know are true is like the interests of capital and land ownership decided that like a golf course and condos are more important than lives, 
um, so that are we more put, important than an agreement. Right. Yeah. Um, and put the full force of the state behind that, even yeah. though they were, um, you know, in direct conflict with a treaty that had been signed. Right. Yeah. So, um, and the, by the full force of the state, I mean like the violence of the police and the military mm -hmm. against indigenous protesters and other folks there. So it's like a, um, and Steve was fucking there. Um, and there were, it, it makes me, I mean, I'm so fucking angry and bummed when I hear about, you know, the stories of people having rocks thrown at them, but also it's just another testament to how much fucking Steve rules that like it's 1990 in Canada and there are first nations protesters showing up to defend their rights. Um, wearing Steve Earl shirts. Um, and, he, and he's, and he's interested. Yeah, Absolutely. He's, he's actually like, I mean, that's, and that's the, that's the thing about him that I think, um, touched me in listening to his music is that sense that not knowing me, not knowing anything about me, but what I'm going through mm -hmm. is something that he cares about. Yeah. Like what I'm going through as a working class person in America, who's, you know, going to you know born in the land of plenty and now there ain't enough like right you know, like he he sees he sees people for like the situation that they're in and he cares especially when they're you know marginalized and i think not saying like i'm marginalized i'm fucking white and fucking straight and a, a male it's it's great i'm very lucky but at the same time like i mean using your privilege to constantly like uplift and support people who are doing, you know, either worse than you or set up. Yeah. Yeah. To be, you know, oppressed more than you are uh -huh. is, um, I don't know. It's really important. And I think that, I think it goes a long way. And I think dude, the fact that he calls out the fucking media in 1990. Yeah. yeah. Says they ain't looking out for you like they used to. Like mm -hmm. that's, uh, it's amazing that he like, and maybe it's the fact that he snuck that in so close to when they start making the sound. Yeah. That yeah. it was hard to cut any of that out. Like yeah. you couldn't just, you couldn't just cut him in where he says like news is fucking lying to you. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, they had to let him also say the, his piece with, you know, totally going and seeing, you know, these, you know, these natives getting, getting, rocks thrown at him wearing Steve Earl shirts by white people wearing Steve Earl shirts throwing yeah. rocks. And I love that, that he, I love that he can acknowledge that people vibe with his music, but aren't necessarily understanding it. Absolutely. But doesn't talk like, but doesn't, you know, call them deplorables. Right. Or like, you... or anything like that. He just, he, he says, he says what he thinks about the world. And if you just like him for his music, that's fine. He's cool with it. Yeah, but if you're gonna get mad, like when I heard he said some shit about Trump or he said some shit about building the wall or whatever, the first time I saw him, and a dude walked out and flipped him off, and I was like, you know what, this guy sat through the whole fucking set though, and then yeah. decided to storm out and protest and flip him off, and you know who doesn't give a shit, Steve Earl. Steve Earl, he's up there, he's up there rocking right? out for the rest of the people who are here. It's incredible because I same you know, you can still I just the other day I was looking something up and there are. You know, mm -hmm. like you'll randomly come across like on Amazon, 
somebody writing a review of like a Steve Earle CD that they bought and it'd be like, well, I don't care for his politics, but this is a great album. And you know, <laughs> there's the part of me that's just like, you dumb fucker. But then there's the other part of me that's like, you know what, man, <laughs> you know what? Like you're here. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, I, I think Steve has definitely just been the person I think of the, in, in, contemporary music i mean obviously steve is still contemporary but that does this same thing really well is jason isbel yeah. right um because he even you know has spoken very recently and he's been you know prolific on social media and at his shows talked about like he got warned you know like hey you're getting more popular now you know what i mean so it's not just like the you know quote unquote like you know, intellectual country fans or whatever yeah. the hell stereotypes people want to use listening to you. So, you know, you had that song in the the fucking Bradley Cooper movie, you know, like all those things. So like you better, um, you know, maybe you ought to tone some of this down or you're going to lose some of your fan base. And he was just like, I don't give a shit. And guess what? Then like the next year he like won four Grammys. <laughs> you know what I mean? And is one of the few artists who's like actually selling records, like not yeah. just having to, you know, like live completely off of what he does on the road. And I think similarly, he's been outspoken about gay rights, about, um, you know, about the rights of immigrants and working people. Um, right. I mean, fucking wrote a country song called white man's world about, yeah. you know, like reckoning with his own identity and like, the, or the, the the times in his life, the shame that he feels for the times in his life when, you know. He, he walked away from a joke without saying yeah, something. Yeah, yeah totally. You know? And and that, I could relate very well to that. Um, yep. But it just showed like there's, I mean, hell, easy for me to say in the position that I'm in, but there is nothing more valuable than one's integrity. And I think Steve and Jason both do that. And I'm just always impressed by the way to your point that they're able to not back down not water down their their message their beliefs or anything like that but still treat you know the fans that might be rubbed off by it like recognizing like that they're human beings yep you know um they deserve health care too yeah right <laughs> even even if they continue to advocate against their own interests um that doesn't mean you know, that they don't have the the same rights or, you know, have the same right to quality of life as anybody else. So I, I very much see Jason Isbell like directly following into the tradition of that, you know, Steve set and, and, and others before him. Um, yeah. I mean, it's easy. It's easy to like, I mean, for me, as far as, you know, I'm now, you know, mid thirties and in straight edge, but I can remember that time when I was younger and drug free, where I looked up to people who were older than me and still drug free. And I felt like confident that I could keep, keep it up because they Absolutely. were, and, yeah. you know, given a lot of those people aren't anymore, but <laughs> you know, it got me through a time in my life when like, if I had started, you know, experimenting or being, you know, careless in that way with uh, drugs and alcohol, it could have fucked my life up and fucked all my relationships up. Yes. So uh, I don't Absolutely. know. It's just, it's really easy to keep, it's really easy to stay the course like in Jason, in Jason Isbell's case, like it's easy for him to stay the course and being, you know, tried and true in his convictions when Steve Earl's still around 
doing the same thing. Fuck yeah. And I mean, I, you know, we're just talking about them from like a political lens, but same thing when it comes to sobriety. Um, yeah. With both of them as well. Exactly. Um, I, I hadn't even occurred to me that yeah. that, that connection as well, but yeah. Yeah. So fuck That's yeah. That's wild. So we're definitely Xing up the next Steve show. Um, <laughs> so, um, but the other thing he, so he goes from, I mean, there's, there's that. So again, like look up Oka um, and, and the incident there in 1990, I just love what he goes into next before they start the song. We're going to give you one to put it between the ditches by. I had never heard that phrase. What before. does that mean? Like, keep your car on the road, get home oh, okay. safely, you know, but like, I, I had never heard that term oh, of phrase. Okay. I get that. Um, you know, it's like, th this is the, this is the last song. So give you one to put it between the ditches by, I don't know if that's like a, a, a colloquialism that he was just saying, or if like somewhere in Steve's drug addled brain that just came out, but it fucking Dude. ruled. That's every like for a while, every time we had a family gathering, my grandma from Irvin, Kentucky mm -hmm. would say something and we would all look around and go, I guess that's a saying. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, that's the, the people who are the best storytellers. It's like, you never know. Like, is that a saying I'm just not familiar with? Or did they literally just come up with that on the spot? Right. Because now, they, yeah. they say it with the same level of confidence. <laughs> exactly. Like, no matter what. Um, <clears throat> well, and then a shout out to here's an interesting thing. So as he's telling people to stay safe on the way home, he gives a shout out to the brothers at the show, um, especially y'all, you know, and then cites the quote, like, just because you aren't paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. Yeah. Um, which it, it initially came from Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, but I'll make another Nirvana connection in Territorial Pissings, which came out this same year on Nevermind, Kurt Cobain also used that line. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it's and he used it as just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after just because you're not yeah. paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after you. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll say this in my own like questioning ignorance at the time when he said brothers and was saying, like, be safe on the way home and, you know, implying like be safe from the cops. I thought he was talking to black folks at the show. Yeah, he might have been. I actually think he's talking to bikers. Um regardless of racial background, because the connection yeah. I'm making now is too, um, when he says at the end, after they finish dead flowers, justice for nutty and Rick, when he's like on his way off stage, it's like the last thing he says before he leaves. Those were two of the wrongfully convicted bikers from the story in justice in Ontario. Oh no shit. Yeah. Um, again, stuff that I listened to this album for years, never yeah. thought about it. But in preparation, I did a little digging and figured that out. So I think he, I mean, I don't think I know Steve had and has a big biker following. Yeah. Um, and so I think he was telling, you know, bikers to like stay safe because cops are always looking for a reason to fuck with you. And, um, you know, it fits in too because, you know, Nutty and Rick, no doubt were up to some nefarious shit. But mm -hmm. they also got convicted for some shit they didn't do just because of who they were and who yeah. they were affiliated with. So, um, fuck, I just love so many, yeah, so dude, much so gold the, from Steve. The, right the there. universe of his his world that's all connected. Yeah, I mean, it's is awesome. It, like, how bringing all these people together, right? Yeah. Like we've even in in this in the course of just a few minutes been able to think about like all of these different like groups of people who 
not just are fans of Steve's music, but for whom there's like a deeply personal connection to what Steve does because of it. Um, Tyler, do you like the Rolling Stones? I love the Rolling Stones, my friend. Dude, me fucking too. This and, this got me to revisit <clears throat> Sticky Fingers. I've listened to it twice this week. Dude, I love it. <laughs> and I mean, that's the thing that I will say is Steve and this particular cover of Dead Flowers got me into the Rolling Stones because I think really up until this point, you know, like I knew that I knew yeah. satisfaction. Yeah. I knew start me. I knew that shit. Mm-hmm. And they weren't like, I neither loved nor hated the Rolling yeah. Stones. Right. I just, I knew about them because they're so ubiquitous in the yeah, culture. Rolling Stones super hits was one of the CDs in my backpack in elementary school. That fucking rules. <laughs> so it wasn't for me, but I think to that point, other than like the radio hits Hearing Steve do Dead Flowers, knowing that that was a Rolling Stones song, um, is what led me to get into what became my two favorite Stones records, which are Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street, which came right after it. Um, And I have Steve to thank for that because I would have just kind of written it off as like, oh yeah, they had some cool shit, but mostly thought it was just like boomer music. And and instead I became a big Stones fan. and then I know it's probably annoying because I fucking talk about it all the time. Uh, I don't think we ever did it as a band, but Brian Hartley Acoustic used to do a, a version of Dead Flowers like this too, um, which is fucking so good. And I know even though we That's never talked sick. about it, that it was a nod to Steve um, and the way that they closed the show um, with this cover. Damn, I, 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 I haven't listened to Exile on Main Street since I was maybe in high school. I need to redownload that one right now and revisit it you should man i think sticky fingers is better that's my opinion but like selling main street's a lot longer it is a lot longer. i mean i we've talked dude something about attention spans at the time like it's making me think about our conversation about bruce springsteen in the river um yeah i don't think I don't think Exile on Main Street needed to be as long as it is, but there's some fucking gold in there along with I mean there's there's well. songs on Sticky Fingers where I get about halfway through and I go, All right, I'm I'm ready for the next yeah. song now. <laughs> I can I could I got what I needed for the It must have just been the types of drugs that folks were taking at that point. Um Can't You Hear Me Knocking is really only two minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, man. <laughs> there's they just there's had, another five minutes like, that didn't need to be there. Why does this have to keep going? Yeah. Um fuck. Well, we have a couple more things we wanted to talk about. Um, so I think this is a good point to transition to that because, I mean, hey, as they say at the end of the record, justice for Nutty and Rick, and then Steve Earle has left the building. Um, so that's the end of Shut Up and Die Like an Aviator. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. And I think this is a good point, Tyler. Um, let's talk a little bit more about some of the cool shit that you've been reading. Yeah, here for the addendum. Um there's uh there's something that like moving right up like from this point before we before we go back in time mm-hmm. i wanted to talk about mark stewart are you familiar with who mark stewart is at all tell me tell me more i know the name it's stacy's husband yeah okay so uh so mark stewart um stacy earl's partner um so he has a really so he 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 found he found Steve like playing in his rockabilly time in Nashville and thought he was like super interesting. And then uh, from there, 
he um he caught Steve years later in his rock and roll time and was like, Oh, yeah, I knew this guy was I knew this guy was like legitimately special. And from there he kind of became a fan of Steve and even like learned some of his songs. And Mark was a guitar player too. <clears throat> so Mark, um he uh though he met he met Stacy because he went to an open mic because he kind of became aware of her through her playing with Steve a little bit around that time. Keep talking, um, but he, keep talking. Gotcha. He met her because um he uh he went and attended a an open mic that she was hosting and kind of hit it off with her. They ended up having a first date at a Waffle House, which is like such a fucking southern thing. But there is a time here where he after he split with um so okay there was god i'm jumping all over the place right now so around this time when when he's you know really deep into dope and whatnot Mm -hmm. he um so he uh he's living with mark and stacy and he's okay sorry i'm going to backtrack one more thing that i'm just thinking of right now before i forget so the um Emilio Lorenzo Ensenat, who the Hardways dedicated to, his wife around that time, or the person he was getting into a relationship with between his marriages to Lou Ann Gill, because he was married to her, left her for this girl Teresa Ensenat. So I'm guessing Emilio Lorenzo is somebody related to her. Because apparently Teresa Ensenat, she was uh she was some kind of music exec at MCA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was MCA. Um, but she like had a corporate music job and she kind of helped a lot. Apparently she was in the studio with Joe Hardy, like doing a lot of the editing on the hard way mm-hmm. while Steve would just record and then he just bounced because he was really fucked up around that time. Like, mm. like partying to a point where like Joe Hardy was uncomfortable with how openly he was doing drugs wow. in the studio. Um, but there is a story about a SWAT team coming to Stacy and, and, uh, Mark's house to get Steve because he had stolen a gun from Luann Gill's mom. Oh, wow. And, uh, also he, uh, Mark Stewart, there's an interview with him in this book where he refers to Luann Gill as, uh, uh steve's grover cleveland marriage because she was <laughs> she was wife four and then wife six <laughs> what a Which reference I that was a very very funny that's a funny reference um but yeah so he stole he stole her uh he stole her her mom's gun and i'm i'm i've like wrote down what uh what page this is on so um so yeah, so so Mark calls Steve and uh they they're out of the house and uh-huh. Steve like and, and Steve says don't come home, the police are coming and I don't want you to come home. I've got a gun. Uh-huh. And this is from Stacy Earl's perspective. But uh she says, "So we're sitting and we're going, oh shit. I said, Steve, what's going on?" He said, "I stole Lou's mom's gun and she's sending the SWAT team." Um, 
she called her mom and dad and was like, okay, here's the situation. I don't know what to do. Uh, her dad, their dad was recovering from a heart attack at that time. Oh wow! And so her mom was just like, call Steve's attorney, call him and tell him if there's any way they can get a 24 hour commitment. So mm-hmm. this is them basically trying to like 5150 Steve. Right. And, um, so she called the attorney, um, and then called the police and was like, yo, like, can you meet us before you go to the house? Right. Like, I want to explain to the situation of what's going on with Steve, which is, you know, just in like white privilege out the fucking I mean, incredible the amount of privilege. Yeah. Yeah. White privilege but... out the yayo that they're able to do this. But also, I mean, I guess it's a different time too. maybe the police in the South were a little bit more willing to, uh, not going guns blazing maybe they want a, a ruby ridge situation and was this in nashville uh yeah this is in nashville yeah yeah um so they went so they talked to the police and they were like just can if we can ask him to come out he'll come out uh so they put him in the back of the police car and then they drove around to the front of the house and then she was like well guess what i've never been in the back of the police car before you can't open the doors so her and mark are locked in next <laughs> thing they, they know they see uh um, they're on their knees surrounding the house and they're getting ready to go up to the front porch and they're banging on the door. The front porch was double deadbolted. You couldn't open the front door. They always oh, go in the back. Yeah. So there's no way for Steve to come out the front. Oh, man. But they're locked in the back of the car. So they can't tell them. And they like, can't tell them, hey, you're going about this the wrong way for so our house. Worried he's going to come around the back and they're going to shoot him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh. So, uh, so yeah, so they're they're like... They're sitting there and and I, I I'm kind of remembering the rest of it. So so mm. they eventually they 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 get Steve out. Steve just kind of walks and he starts leaving. Like he starts just walking down the road. And they get they get in there. He doesn't get arrested or anything like that. I mean, I guess he had a legal gun. It wasn't his, but like, you know, he didn't right. try to take it, he didn't <clears throat> try to use it or anything like that. Yeah. So I mean, I guess no harm, no real foul. But they're in the house and they're like, there's drug paraphernalia everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. And they're like, what, what is this? And he, they're like, oh, well, that's his. And they're like, well, you got to get this cleaned up. So they just kind of let them clean up. Like, I mean, I guess this is just, you know, you're dealing with, you know, are you going to arrest every single junkie like in town? Cause you're going to have a full jail at this point. Like, I don't know, like, like what the rationale was on these police yeah. to, to let this slide. I guess maybe they were just taking pity on this family in crisis or something like that. But, uh, but Steve is leaving and they're like, well, we told him you wanted him out. And she's like, no, I didn't want him out. I just wanted him safe. Yeah. 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 So how's he going to go? Right. Yeah. But then um, like, apparently like around that time, like Mark was like, they're apparently like not great now. Like they, they, like or at least when this book was written in their in the mid 2000s they mm. like kind of don't have a very good relationship because Steve was so horrible around that time mm-hmm. but Mark was like there mm. in a way a lot of people weren't because i mean again like the music industry stepped away from him every you know he's basically stepped away from a lot of people who you know would have maybe yeah kept him from going full bore but like he was there to like lend him money when he needed it you know he slept on their couch for a really long time like That's around amazing. this time like he gets like credited for being like one of the people who i guess got steve through this period of time you know <clears throat> up until him going to prison 
Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, a lot of what like was instrumental, I guess, in getting him clean was this relationship he had with, uh, Stacy's husband. That's amazing. Is... I mean, and again, regardless of, you know, understandable, if there's a fracture in the relationship at some point, I know from all too personal experience, just, I, I cannot imagine Steve was a pleasant person to be around at all during oh, this yeah. time period, what personally, professionally, family wise, like any other way. And so, um, yeah, credit where it's due, because as we were saying, and we've mentioned a couple of times, at this point in the early 90s, there was a very good chance that this could have been the end, not just of Steve Earle's musical career, but the end of his life, um, considering how poorly um, and how in terrible shape he was um, and just in the deepest throes of addiction to both heroin and cocaine, the fact that he never died of an overdose, that he always like found himself um, somewhere to get by, you know what I mean? Um, leading up to his, you know, incarceration and trip to rehab. Um, it's incredible and damn, just so damn thankful <laughs> that he's still yeah, with us and doing one of, one of the things mark said was apparently like uh mark would take him to um steve needed like a higher dose of methadone so mm. they would drive him up to chattanooga to get uh or drive him down to chattanooga to get methadone yeah um and uh he um like he was skin and bones when he was really when he was deep into being a junkie yeah and um the methadone is like one of the things that caused Steve to like balloon up. He and ballooned like up gain, a bit, yeah. Gain a lot of weight, which is uh which is tragic because then you know he kind of stayed that way. Yeah. Which had like totally fucked up his physiology. Yeah. And uh but I mean just... well I mean the I imagine if you asked him, you know, would you rather stay hooked alive, on heroin yeah. or, or alive in this, you know. Yeah. You make that choice, but yeah, because it is interesting to think about like we don't have a lot of pictures of Steve during this time because we really, at least in the public eye, don't see him again until train of coming. Or yep. I'm, and I'm thinking about too, like uh that video that we can discuss it sometime, that you know, random MTV special that I had never known existed of Steve playing a prison show mm -hmm. um, right after he gets. Oh, we'll be doing an episode over. on that. Oh yeah. Like that <laughs> deserves a full episode. Um, Cause I'm also, there's a lot I want to dig into just around the background of how that came to be mm -hmm. and, and MTV at that time in the mid nineties, like they want to do a special with Steve Earl. Um, yeah. But they did. Um, let's go. And in addition to being a great show though, it's like, yeah, Steve's big at that time, you know, mm -hmm. clearly had ballooned up and, you know, um, but was looking and sounding healthy and seemed particularly proud to be not just alive, but like advocating for, you know, the inmates. Yeah. And giving like just, back. The, yeah. The idea of like, this is, this is not just a show and entertainment. Yeah. It's that, but also a chance for folks to tell their own stories so that these people that, politicians media and so many others dehumanize and demonize like you know we realize like that they are very much human beings and we are all very much in the position of like 
what's the saying like <clears throat> you know there but for the grace of god or whoever it might be go i right um yeah so yeah i think this is a good um well first of all tyler i appreciate that addendum and i think there's going to be a lot of more cool opportunities for you to share more from the book. Tell, tell us quickly about the book again um, that you got that story oh, from, and then let's talk a little bit about the liner notes and wrap up. Yeah. Um, so, well, I was going to jump back to Shep and like an aviator, that thing that I remembered to, to not forget. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing on here says uh, on the back, it says how I spent my summer vacation by Steve Earl and the Dukes. First, we went to Australia. There were no kangaroos in Sydney. Then we went to New Zealand, then Bangkok for one hour, then England, then Ireland, then Canada, then home. We went all around the world. We hung out with a lot of bikers and drank a lot of beer. I didn't even get thrown in jail once, which is a hilarious way to end that, <laughs> that, that sentiment, considering what came immediately I know. next. Perfect. <laughs> wow. Perfect and also, summary. like, that was me reading that live. I, I hadn't even read it in full. I just realized there was something there. And I was like, oh, I should read that on the on, on air. And I was like, oh, wait, that's pretty funny. And, and I wasn't it, prepared for that to be the way it ended. It's also amazing, too, like the, the deep amount of like thought that he puts into like all the stuff he puts in his liner notes. Mm -hmm. And said at this point, it was like, that's the most he could muster. Like, yep. there weren't there weren't any kangaroos. We drank a lot yep. of beer. I didn't even go to jail. Yeah. That's my summary. Yeah. Uh, I got to go to sleep. Like that's kind of his, <laughs> the where it ends. So, well, we've got um, a lot more to, oh, go ahead, Tyler. Yeah. yeah. Do you, do you want to get into some more book stuff or do you want to, do you, do you think we need to cut it for the night? I think we should probably cut it because we're two hours. Gotcha. Um, oh shit. All right. But we always do this. Yeah, Anybody do this. who is interested enough, I think is cool with it. But um, I think we got a lot of good stuff to spread out, but if there's anything, um, book wise that you'd like to 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 preview like coming up let's close on yeah that. i mean there's so there's a lot about uh i, I found out about richard bennett mm -hmm. made some more springsteen connections connected to our um coming out of our um see that one i can do real quick yeah i'm um, on the way home for christmas in 85 steve uh um steve here's born in the usa with new ears I was intrigued by the fact that Springsteen opened the album with Born in the USA and then it was really a theme and an overture and he opened the show with it. On that drive, he wrote two songs, Guitar Town and Down the Road, envisioned as an opener and a closer. Fuck yeah, that's amazing. So like, it's just just little things like that, like little cool shit from the book. Yeah. Um, and then I got like, you know, stuff on Tony Brown, who we talked about earlier, Steve's producer at MCA, uh, sought to break the Nashville tradition to push, oh, um, to push for the Dukes to be a band so that the Dukes being a band mm -hmm. was a thing like, and, and not just the people who play with and Steve, not just session it. players. Like yeah, they, yeah. they, he wanted, he wanted who Steve recorded with to be the people Steve played with permanent members, really yeah. an un, unheard of thing at the time, mm -hmm. just super cool. And I think like pretty progressive for him who ended up totally turning his, uh, his back on him. And honestly, like we're at two hours. I can just blow through some of this stuff real quick because it's not really stuff we can discuss too much. It's just things I think you might find interesting. Yeah, man, do it. Um, and we'll wrap up. But yeah, the stuff on Richard Bennett, born in Chicago in 51. He was a session player, road dog for uh, Neil Diamond, saw Steve as an opportunity to get into producing. That mm. was Richard Bennett's attraction to him was he could go from being just a session player and he was done touring and whatnot. And he saw an ability for him to come into like the producer game helping Steve. He met him out in LA. 
they co-wrote some of the guitar town songs um apparently steve could not stop talking about how the record was going to change country like he's just this arrogant fucking like <laughs> like 32 like 30 year old acting like a 21 year old yeah um and um but yeah he uh he gets shafted on guitar town uh and exit zero and you know he gets like not credited for being the producer he felt like he was oh, he doesn't get wow. the points he thought he should have deserved too mm. um he only did the guitar town tour the only shows he ever played live with him was just like six shows mm -hmm. um but then he stayed on for producer for the next record um another uh exit zero thing the cover art is based it was, it was inspired by a, a exit that is just south of louisville i pass it every time i go to pick up records from uh ldb stuff no shit yeah exit zero is just south of louisville that is what he, steve wanted there was a huge issue he um uh, Jimmy Bowen, one of the MCA executives, hated the idea of the cover. Uh. And also, there was a huge deal with Exit Zero because in for Exit Zero, Exit Zero is the first Steve Earle in the Dukes record. Right. It is not just a Steve Earle record. Yeah. And there was a huge pushback he got because he didn't want the band. He didn't want Steve to have to register as a band because mm -hmm. around that time, Alabama was just winning all of the awards. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted him to remain a like solo, a solo like, artist, male vocalist, he, or whatever. Yes, because yeah, he yeah. might have a chance at like at like winning something for wow. the music. So they yeah. created this whole thing, which is like kind of why, like, I think they were kind of done with him after the hard way because he had made such a a fuss and and just been such a dick to deal with. Yeah. But so he was. I love it. I mean, I love it too. But it's a yeah. It's like he's. A pain in the ass to work with, and he's clearly gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into drugs, like over the course yes. of the time. Oh, so yeah. I think from their perspective, it was probably a pretty easy decision. Yes. Um, as much um, as it was an awful one, right? Yeah. And I mean basically like they just they love Steve when he was doing well. Mm -hmm. And then when he wasn't, they were fucking done. Like okay. um some stuff for Guitar Town. Um, whole record was pretty much demoed in pre-production before that was kind of the norm. Oh, which interesting. Yeah. Like apparently they went in, they had everything figured out already and they just did it rather than yeah. having to write or work on anything. They just came in and nailed it, which is such a fucking normal thing now. Right. Well, most, and also, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, yeah. most bands know exactly what the record is going to be before they get to the. Right. If, if nothing else for than for the practical reason of like, we don't have endless time in the studio, so mm -hmm. we need to be ready to go. But yeah, they were coming from a place where like, they just went to the studio every day. So yep. this is what we do. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I've got a, uh, a cool quote from Roseanne Cash about uh, Guitar Town. Um, she says, made us all feel redundant. I'm not kidding. It made me feel redundant. It was like a tidal wave came through Nashville and it was so refreshing. She remembers a reporter coming up at a release party because of the buzz and asked if Steve had potential to be a star. And she said, doesn't matter. He's changed everything. It's a whole new paradigm. Wow. Yeah. She also gives Bennett a lot of the credit for cultivating the material at that time, mm -hmm. at least. But like, to me, it's like, I'll give Bennett all the fucking credit for making Steve what he was. Everything Steve did that matters the most to me was after he was gone was after he was gone yeah. except my one of my favorite Steve Earle records maybe my favorite one is the one I think if I think it's the one that Bennett camp comes back for okay Interesting. and works on with him later um I'll be excited to talk about that 
love life shit. Uh, so yeah, Steve became wrapped up with Teresa Ensenat. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Emilio Lorenzo Ensenat must be a relation of hers. Their relationship started while he was still married to Luann Gill or oh, Luann Gill, whom he <laughs> married one month after they final the finalized divorce from Carol Ann Hunter, who was Justin's mother. Uh, when given shit about all these activities and asked if and asked what is wrong with them. And he complicates his and why he complicates his life so much. He said, "I'm not afraid of commitment." <laughs> My man, I know. I, can't. I that shit. I like wrote that whole like copy the whole thing from the book because I was like, Brian will fucking love this shit. That there's like so many layers. Like yeah, mm-hmm. my my commitment to fucking up my life. Yep. supersedes my commitment to any individual yep. relationship i'm not afraid to thing. commit to any woman and get married to her at all i'm, I'm not, not afraid, afraid to marry anyone but that doesn't mean i'm not going to just immediately go and marry somebody else that's um, incredible i so oh what i mean no you you can't follow that man i think we need yeah. to close on that one okay yeah we, really, we can close there i needed to go but there's Dude, this is gold. I yeah, no, it's pretty good. This here. And, well, I mean, and honestly, we can end there because everything else I've got is just like drama and like super sad and shitty. Well, which I think there will be room for, especially as we like kind of. Oh, like, as we go into train of coming and shit. Yeah, because yeah. like this is part of this too is just the narrative of like one chapter closing and another opening in terms of Steve's career. So this is, you know, at least from a from a musical output perspective, the end of that first chapter um and it ends in a even though like it's a great record it ends at a very very low point in steve's life and career um where which is the great thing is he still clearly had a fucking sense of humor about everything no matter how bad it got um tyler always enjoy doing this with you man and hell yeah bro um, i mean speaking of not being afraid of commitment if you're here at this point um you're committed with us um and you know most of this has been about steve um with some detours here and there and that is going to continue until we're all the way through the discography but we're not going to be ending there um so once again thank you for listening um this has been hardcore troubadour we'll see you again soon yes thank you peace